0: Welcome to the Physics Capsule Podcast. This is where we give you a scientific perspective of the world. We're a couple of physicists and science communicators. Join us as we indulge in conversation and try to reason out the physics behind the world around you. In the 1840s, Planet Neptune was discovered based on deviations in Uranus's orbit that suggested that a possible eighth planet existed beyond it. By the early 1900s, astronomers were convinced that Neptune alone could not account for the variations in Uranus's orbit. A rich Bosnian astronomer and mathematician,
1: Percival Lowell, who had recently built an observatory in Arizona, in the United States initiated a project to discover this unknown planet.
0: He called it Planet X. The job of identifying this hypothetical planet was given to the young American astronomer Clyde Tombaugh, who systematically photographed the night sky over a year. He fed his photographs through a blink comparator A machine that enabled him to quickly switch back and forth between two photographs, allowing him to spot any objects that had moved during the interval between when the two photographs were made. Stars observed from the Earth normally stay in place
1: over several years. Planets, comets, asteroids and other smaller, more agile objects move across the night sky much more quickly. Using a blink comparator allowed Tombaugh to efficiently track such an object in the night sky.
0: In February of 1930, he finally discovered a planet beyond Neptune. It made headlines around the world, and over 1,000 names were suggested for the newly discovered member of our solar system. We were a family of eight planets and one sun, until now.
1: A young English girl by name Venetia Burney suggested a name that would go on to compete and win a ballot unanimously at the Lowell Observatory. The new planet would be represented by the letters PL
0: that would honor Percival Lowell. It would become the ninth planet in our solar system and would be named after Pluto, the Grecian god of the underworld. Think of the perceived dispute surrounding Pluto to be a recent one. The planet has actually been having some trouble ever since its discovery, hasn't it? That's true. The trouble with Pluto started right after its discovery.
1: The planet, Lowell and others had expected, was predicted to be about seven times as massive as the Earth if it was to have any effect on Uranus's orbit.
0: But soon after Pluto's discovery, its mass was determined to be equal to the Earth's. It would have been hard to make such a statement, though. It was. In 1931, our picture of Pluto was only as a faint, somewhat round object on photographic film. The one Earth mass estimate too was eventually found to be inaccurate. It was subsequently revised a handful of times until a new discovery was made in 1978 that changed our view of Pluto forever. Charon, Pluto's moon, was discovered
1: that year. At last we could use its orbit to measure rather than indirectly
0: estimate Pluto's mass. The manner in which such a measurement can be made is pretty interesting. True. I think we should go into that a bit. Well, what we need is quite a rare occurrence. We need Garen's orbit around Pluto to coincide with a plane along which astronomers here on Earth can observe the planet. That would be incredibly rare. It is. In fact, it's possible once only every 124 years. That makes it literally a once-in-a-lifetime experience. We had two such events um, in April of 1986. First, Charon passed in front of Pluto and then behind it. So, so that looks like Charon eclipsing Pluto first, followed by Pluto eclipsing Karen. Right. And we notice a dip in the light reflected off these bodies, which allows us to calculate the relative sizes. Since we know Charon's orbit, we may consequently determine Pluto's actual radius by comparing the light curves of these two events. Pluto's mass determined this way turned out to put it in the group of the smallest objects known in our solar system. By 2006, astronomers were convinced that it was no more than two thousandths the size of the Earth. I see. If you could place Pluto and Charon side by side, you would cover no more than the area of the United States. That's, That's pretty small. Yes. As a rough estimate, you'd need almost 500 planets like Pluto just to reach the mass of the Earth. That, that is a lot, but all of this spelt a different problem altogether. If Pluto was in fact this
1: small, it could not have been the culprit altering Uranus's orbit. Ah, that's right.
0: The trouble with Uranus's orbit was actually solved by 1993. It turns out that Neptune's mass had been calculated wrongly and we had obtained more accurate data when Voyager 2 flew by Neptune in 1989. This allowed us to recalculate its
1: gravitational effects on Uranus's orbit, and the new calculations fit observations perfectly. Lowell's Planet X was no longer needed to explain
0: Uranus's orbit. But we couldn't dismiss anything else that quickly. Although Uranus's orbit was no longer a point of concern, we did have Pluto to deal with It was known as the ninth planet, but hints of our solar system being much vaster than we had originally imagined slowly started cropping up. The definition of a planet
1: was somewhat vague until recently. That's right. We had been using it to distinguish any object that wasn't obviously a star and was in orbit around the sun. The only explicit condition was that it was supposed to have enough mass and gravity
0: to shape itself into a sphere. That was done to put comets and asteroids out of the definition. Right. And this was not unlike the Earth or Mars or Venus or Mercury. True. But not only was the definition vague, it was also a bit too all-encompassing. After 1993, when Pluto's mass had been reasonably measured, it was first confirmed that Pluto was not all that special. There were other planets similar to it in our solar system. This idea had been thrown around for decades. Almost since immediately after Pluto's discovery. Yes,
1: but it was only by 1993 that we had proper evidence that there existed
0: a vast band of debris orbiting our solar system. These were leftovers from billions of years ago when our solar system was first formed. This belt has objects all the way from fine dust to massive debris and is 20 times larger and nearly 200 times more massive than the asteroid belt it is known today as the kuiper belt the kuiper belt is home to pluto it is also home to three other so-called dwarf planets haumea which has two moons makemake which has one and both of these are smaller than pluto there's also eris which is a quarter more massive than pluto besides being called
1: dwarf planets these are also called trans neptunian objects or plutoids there is another dwarf planet closer to home in the asteroid belt, which is the only minor planet
0: inside Neptune's orbit. Of course, this is not always true because Pluto follows a characteristic elliptical path that puts it closer to the sun than Neptune uh, during 20 of its 248 year orbital period around the sun. Right.
1: In fact, between 1979 and 1999,
0: Pluto was called the eighth planet. That's. I remember this used to be a very common question in quizzes those days. Right. Um, everyone was asking what was the eighth planet and the answer wasn't Neptune anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, Neptune was orbiting farther from the Sun than Pluto around this time. Exactly. But the fact all through remained that… Pluto was, for all intents and purposes, a planet, just like the Earth itself. Exactly. I think we've veered off track for a while there. We were discussing what exactly a planet is. Right.
1: In 2006, the International Astronomical Union, a bunch of leading physicists and astronomers around the world sat down to precisely define just what we mean by the word planet.
0: Let's quickly recap what we said earlier. The general idea of a planet until recently was that it was a large spherical object orbiting a star without itself giving off any energy like a star would. Specifically, it was massive enough to become spherical under its own gravitational pull. In 2006, a new definition was put forth, debated, even argued I'd say, certainly, and when the definition was finally agreed to and voted upon, it turned out to have a major side effect. The new definition is that a planet is a celestial object that is
1: large enough to not just become a sphere itself, but also have cleared all debris
0: and other celestial bodies in its neighbourhood. And the side effect was that Pluto was no longer a qualified planet by this definition. Not only did it have debris nearby, it had a belt full of the solar system's past circling around the sun with it. It had the largest string of debris surrounding it that we had ever seen in our solar system. The other observation we had made was that unlike our moon orbiting the Earth, Pluto's moon, Charon, wasn't orbiting it. Charon is nearly half the size of Pluto, which means it doesn't orbit Pluto, rather the two objects mutually orbit each other. It's as though they're each other's moon. Although Pluto isn't a planet by all three requirements of the new definition, it does satisfy two of them. Correct. It orbits
1: the sun and is spherical in shape. It just hasn't managed to clean up its orbit yet. And
0: probably never will. It's like an almost planet, which is why we call it a minor planet or a dwarf planet. It still has to its credit that instead of being the smallest planet, it's now one of the largest dwarf planets. That's still something I think. That's true
1: and the new definition of a planet isn't in the clear yet. It has its own critics with many pointing out that the orbits of other planets, like the Earth and Jupiter too, are nowhere near fully cleared of debris since asteroids and comets
0: fly past us all the time. The counter argument is that none of these debris appear nearly as punctually on our orbits as Kuiper belt debris appear on Pluto's orbit.
1: Uh, What is true though is that Had we not redefined what counts as a planet, we would by now have over a hundred objects in our solar system Ah, that we would have ended
0: up calling planets. That's correct. The new definition came at the right time. But in talking about Pluto's status as a planet, most people miss the bigger picture. Whether it qualifies as a major planet or as a dwarf, its own beauty and what it has taught us about our solar system cannot be dismissed.
1: I think that's a wonderful way of putting it. Although we knew and had observed Pluto for decades, our first close look at the planet came from New Horizons' flyby just two years ago.
0: The event was historic. On 14th July 2015, nearly 85 years after its discovery, we got our first real look at Pluto, with crisp pictures that told us a lot about the planet. NASA's New Horizons space probe flew by the dwarf planet, obtaining nearly 50 GB of data in the process. The data was relayed back to the Earth over 2016 and 17. We know
1: for example that the Pluto-Sharon system is far more complex than we had originally imagined.
0: Far from being cold rocks in distant space, these have surfaces teeming with activity. Mm-hmm. We even found traces of an ocean that once existed inside Charon in the past. The same kind of ice-water ocean may exist inside Pluto even today. Besides Charon, New Horizons showed us two more moons around Pluto,
1: Nix and Hydra. They're
0: both incredibly small.
1: Right. Uh, we said earlier that Pluto and Charon could both fit inside the United States. On similar lines... Where would
0: Nix and Hydra fit? Yeah. I think um, Nix would approximately fit inside London and Hydra would fit inside Seattle. Huh, that's interesting. There are actually two other satellites. We only have a small hazy picture so far of Pluto's tiniest companion called Styx. There's a slightly larger one also called Kerberos. And where, where would, would... they fit? Yes. In- They're together no larger than Dublin. Huh, that's That's wonderful. There's an underlying theme in the naming here. Pluto is a god of the underworld. Charon is his boatman who carries souls across the river Styx. Uh Uh-huh, right. And Hydra was a Greek water monster. A five-headed snake. Right. And
1: Nyx was Charon's mother. And Kerberos was Pluto's three-headed
0: dog which guarded the doorway to the underworld. (laughs) But Greek mythology apart, there's a lot more that New Horizons has shown us about our favorite dwarf planet. Pluto's
1: atmosphere was found to be blue. And Sharon's dark red polar caps came from atmospheric gases that escaped Pluto and collected on its moon's surface. We also know now that methane and nitrogen ice covers uh, Pluto's surface at minus 225 degrees Celsius.
0: And it turns out that Pluto has a thousand kilometer wide heart-shaped nitrogen glacier, which is the largest glacier in our entire solar system. So it may not be a planet, But Pluto is special in its own way. Mm
1: -hmm. And we'll know a lot more about its neighborhood over the coming years as New Horizons
0: explores the Kuiper Belt. The space probe is now over 400 million kilometers beyond Pluto and we look forward to more from that mission. And if Pluto has taught us anything since its discovery in the early 1900s, it has taught us that our own solar system is a mysterious and exciting place that will take us decades to explore in full.
1: We'll have one last episode for this series coming out next month.
0: And this time round, we'll probably keep the topic under wraps. Yes, the last thing we want is a spoiler. (laughs) Right. Until then, as always, if you know a friend who you think will like this show, please tell them about it. You can visit podcast.physicscapsule.com for show notes, to listen, or to subscribe. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Overcasts, and wherever else good podcasts are available. The Physics
1: Capsule podcast is recorded at St. Philomena's College, Mysore. It is hosted by V.H. Belvardi and me, Roshan Sahil, from the Physics Department. See you again in a fortnight. Connect. <coughs> <coughs> okay. <laughs>